Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. America's drug regulator has approved the first new medication for Alzheimer's disease in nearly 20 years. But the drug and its approval is filled with controversy. Will the atypical process pay off? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show how to turn fog in the air into water to drink. We see small droplets actually hanging in the air. And those small droplets are source of water. And a different way of administering oxygen that could turn medical ventilation mm, upside down. It's not as ridiculous as it might sound at first. Breathing is ultimately about transferring oxygen into the bloodstream. And the lower guts of vertebrates like humans are well lined with blood vessels. But first. On Monday, America's drug regulator, the FDA, granted conditional approval for the use of a new drug for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia, a syndrome associated with the ongoing decline of brain function. Dementia affects around 50 million people globally. And as the risk of dementia increases with age and the world is getting older, it is spreading fast. For millions of people living with Alzheimer's and for those caring for them, this is a ray of hope. But this is only the beginning. Biogen, the makers of the drug, still have work to do. It's known as aducanumab, though it will be marketed under the brand name Aduhelm. And it's a drug aimed at slowing the advance of Alzheimer's, which is a debilitating degenerative mental condition which leads eventually to severe dementia and total helplessness. Simon Long is a senior editor at The Economist and the author of our special report last year on dementia. There's no drug on the market that does more than mildly alleviate symptoms. So this has been hugely anticipated by the millions of people worldwide who suffer from Alzheimer's, perhaps 30 million of them, and millions and millions more who care for them. And how does the drug work? What the drug does and what it's been proved to do is attack a protein known as beta amyloid, which builds up plaque in the brain that blocks connections between neurons and so is thought to lead to dementia. Uh, It's very successful at that, this drug. But what is so far unproven, and the reason the FDA approval is only conditional, is that it's yet to be shown that the drug actually helps really slow cognitive decline. There were earlier tests that were actually 
scrapped because they appeared not to be working. They then re-looked at the data and said that with higher doses, it did work in people with symptoms of mild cognitive decline and did have some effect in slowing the advance of dementia. But the FDA is so far not convinced by that and is requiring what's called a phase four trial, a big clinical trial where they will have to go and prove that all over again or try and prove it all over again. And the FDA has warned that if they fail, then the approval might be rescinded. So the drug is based on what's known as the amyloid hypothesis. That is that these beta amyloid proteins are the cause of Alzheimer's and the dementia that it brings. But it's only a hypothesis. So the drug is fighting something that possibly might cause Alzheimer's, but it might not. It's quite a strong hypothesis in that in the brains of everybody with Alzheimer's, as far as is known, there's a big buildup of beta amyloid. However, it's not conclusive because there are people who have large amounts of beta amyloid in their brains and no signs of cognitive decline or dementia. So it remains a hypothesis. And that's why in some circles in neuroscience, this approval is very controversial because it's seen as validating that hypothesis, which they think it's too early to do, and perhaps diverting attention away from other avenues of research which might be more fruitful. I spoke to John Gallagher, who's a professor of cognitive health and the director of Dementia's Platform UK. He's at the University of Oxford. And the way he sees it is that the only way to see if the theory holds is by using the drug. If the theory holds up, it does make sense, but it's not the only theory which is around. It may be that the amyloid beta is a result of neuropathology rather than the cause of neuropathology. But I think the only way we're going to discover this is, is by using the drug and then discovering the extent to which it really does work. And it, it may work. You know, I don't think we should be too cynical about this. On the other hand, I think we should remain critical. So do you think that the FDA made the right call by approving the drug, knowing that the drug has met the obligation to be safe, but it's not certain that the drug actually works? It's a very difficult one. And certainly there are some people who think it's it's a very bad idea because it lowers the bar for all drugs. That if the FDA's own expert advisory panel appointed to advise on this drug voted conclusively against approving it. 10 out of 11 said it should not be approved and the 11th expert said he was uncertain. So it's controversial in that sense. But yeah, I'm not really qualified to judge whether they made the right call. But that is a question I put to John Gallagher. I think the FDA have taken a bit of a punt in the sense that not all the data are consistently supportive of their decision. But I think that the potential benefits definitely outweigh any potential harms. And therefore, it is a good decision to make. So what about any other problems with the drug, the costs or the side effects? Did these make the decision even more difficult for the FDA? Well, it runs the risk of building up huge bills as millions of people will want this drug, though it may not be appropriate for all of them, it is estimated to cost by Biogen $56,000 a year, so very expensive. Uh, it has side effects, and perhaps one in three people who use it develop brain edemas, swelling in the brain, and have to be monitored very closely. It's a difficult decision. I have spoken to one neurologist who thought that the worst outcome that could be would be a really expensive drug that worked a little bit for a minority of patients. But John Gallagher saw this rather differently. I think that is a reasonable point of view. But I think another point of view is that it will encourage other pharmaceutical companies to dust off their monoclonal antibodies 
and to put them on the market. Now, as soon as you have competition in the market, then the prices will come down. So I don't see this as a static position. I just see this as a step in the right direction. And also, it will be taken as a huge sign of encouragement to continue pouring money into dementia research, which has been a rather neglected field, partly because success has been so elusive. Let's return to how the drug works. Will this open the door to other sorts of treatments using that technique? Yes, this is what's known as a monoclonal antibody. And Biogen is far from the only pharma company that's been working on this type of treatment. And there are probably various others in different stages of development, as John Gallagher pointed out. I'm aware that many companies have very similar treatments, um, which are on their shelves, so to speak. There's been a major retrenchment from neurological drugs over the last five years with companies closing down their laboratories and research offices. But it's not that they've thrown away the idea. They just thought it was too big a risk to pursue. Now that we have this encouragement, I think they will pick up those drugs. And uh, I fully expect there to be other monoclonal antibodies on the market within, well, at least submitted for licensing within the next few years. So do you think that this might open up the doorway to other drugs that treat the problems that cause dementia? Yes, I mean, Alzheimer's, of course, is, is by far the most common cause of dementia, accounting for maybe 60 to 80% of cases, but it, it's only one of dozens. And some researchers are more optimistic, in fact, about finding treatments for some quite specific and rarer forms of dementia, like Huntington's disease, dementia associated with Parkinson's disease, like frontotemporal lobe dementia, which are rare genetic conditions for which various forms of, of gene therapy may be developed that can cure them earlier. Beyond that, and often associated also with dementia, is the form known as vascular dementia. And there, what seems to be having the biggest effect is not drug treatments, but changes in lifestyle. I mean, it's remarkable, in fact, that a study published a couple of years ago showed that in the first 15 years of this century, the likelihood of a 75-year-old in America going on to develop dementia reduced from about one in four to about one in five, which is significant. And that's without these drugs, of course. That's just by changing the modifiable risk factors, namely the way people live their lives. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And also our thanks to John Gallagher. For more analysis like this, you can subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How can people collect water where there's not enough of it? Like in the driest places on Earth, the Atacama Desert. Since the 1950s, people in Chile have been investigating how to capture fog, moisture in the air, and turn it into water. The result was a low-tech solution 
large nets stretched between poles which capture water droplets in the air. This simple technique has been effective. 360 square meter nets in a Chilean cooperative called Los Tomes can harvest 650 liters of water a day. But scientists think they can tweak the mesh material and do better still. Typical folk collectors, they are large meshes around 40, 50 square meters. My name is Ursula Stachewicz. I'm an associated professor at AGH University of Science Technology. And I'm a material scientist working mainly with polymer nanofibers. The mesh are hanging on the large stands and um, they have openings a few centimeters usually and the fog is actually pushed through this mesh hanging in the air and when the fog is passing through the water droplets are staying on this mesh so they are collected uh, the water droplets they agglomerate in the larger ones and they slowly start dripping down and below this mesh there is a water spout where it's collecting the water droplets and then it goes to the tank. So this is very simple idea of just catching this water droplets on the mesh but it still has a room for improvement and enhancing the efficiency of typical fog collectors. You've been taking this technology and developing it. How is your innovation different? How does it work? So the typical meshes, they have quite large openings. So it means they're not able to collect all the small fraction of droplets as fog has different sizes of droplets. So that's the first thing. So if you include their smaller fibers and also with meshes with the smaller pore size, and we produce at the end nano-sized fibers in the form of meshes. This mesh typically looks like a tissue, a paper tissue, but the porosity is more than 90% of that. And the pores are so small that you cannot see through, but they are there. So they're a little bit different than the typical ones they use with the standard melt spinning processing uh, for this technology used at the moment. We use electrospinning. Electrospinning is a technology that allows to produce those nanofibers, comparing to, let's say, typical microfibers. So we produce the meshes with much smaller opening, uh, smaller fiber diameter, and they allow to catch the smaller droplets sizes which are also present in the fog. So in this way, you can increase the efficiency. Another thing is we can control the surface properties of the fibers we include in those meshes. So it means the surface properties, they can have different charges. For example, water droplets are negatively charged and the charge of the fibers can be positively. So in the kind of dipole interaction, the typical plus minus interactions, we can catch water droplets faster and even more just by using these electrostatic interactions between water droplets and the surface we create. Now you've tested this device. How well did it work? So uh, we have tested several different polymers used because the polymers, they will have different mechanical properties, but also surface properties. So we have tested several of them. With some polymers, we are able to control the surface charges a little bit better. And that actually enhance a lot the water collection rate. So we see that, and that's what was done with polycarbonate that's a very common polymer 
transparent use in industry. So the same polymer actually can be produced in the form of this polymer meshes with controlled surface potential. So it's very common, not very expensive polymer that can be applied to this fog water collection technologies. And what needs to happen now to take it from prototype to deployment? So, so far, uh, the prototype has been tested in the laboratory conditions and the fog collectors actually and the rate how much water you collect depends strongly on the environment, uh, where are they used actually. So the next step is we're looking for collaboration with companies that produce the current technologies with four collectors, probably because they have already set up environmental studies. So we are very happy to collaborate in that way for trying to move forward for in-field tests, our meshes. What about the cost? How affordable is it? We, of course, produce our meshes at the moment at the lab scale, but electrospinning technique is the technique that is used in large facilities. So electrospan fiber is nothing new. It's used in many commercial products, especially in the air filtration, where all the air filtration membranes, they actually consist of one layer of electrospan fibers and they are produced on the large scale. So this is not a problem to move it to scale up facilities for production of electrospan fibers. And it can be done in a similar way for the fog water collectors. And how much of a difference could this technology make? I think it can increase the efficiency of water collection in a simple way. So it can improve the existing technologies by not increasing so much of the cost just by the simple incorporation of the nanofibers. Professor Stakiewicz, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Finally, among the many hard truths of the past year and a half has been the realization of the limitations of medical ventilation. Mechanical help to breathe is vital life-saving treatment for many critically ill with COVID-19. But it is not without risk. Intubation through the trachea requires sedation. It can damage lung tissue and even introduce new infection. The supply of ventilators is also limited, and they require expert staff to run. So if there were another way to help people breathe, wouldn't you try it? It might depend on where they want to stick the tube. A cheaper, less invasive alternative that scientists are investigating is whether it might be possible to ventilate people through their rectums, effectively allowing them to breathe through their bottoms. Gilad Ahmed is a science correspondent for The Economist. A team led by Dr. Takebe Takanori at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital is experimenting with what is effectively an oxygen enema, and he has high hopes that it could one day work in humans. Gilad, I think it would be useful for all of us to have a refresher course on how the lungs oxygenate blood that then travels through the body and how that might work if we didn't use the lungs but used a different part of the body. So the lungs are uh, perfectly designed to oxygenate the blood. Within them, you have this sort of fractal, self-repeating structure, which on the smaller scales means you have big tubes that feed into little tubes that feed into even littler tubes. So at the very littlest tube, you have oxygen separated from uh, the bloodstream by only a few cells, which makes it very easy for the oxygen to pass through into the blood. The gut, unsurprisingly, is not designed fractally for the easy distribution of oxygen. But what got the researchers thinking that one would be able to breathe through one's bottom? 
There are all sorts of amazing modes of respiration in the animal kingdom. Some amphibians breathe through their skin, for example, while certain species of fish breathe not just through their gills, but also through their guts. And Dr. Takebe and his team took inspiration from these fish, asking themselves whether other animals might not share this ability. And it's not as ridiculous as it might sound at first. Breathing is ultimately about transferring oxygen into the bloodstream, and the lower guts of vertebrates like humans are well lined with blood vessels. That's why the rectal administration of drugs, for instance, is, is so effective and popular. So if the body can absorb medication in this way, why not oxygen? But fish and humans are rather different. How do you go about testing whether this might work in humans as well? The first step is you test it on uh, a proxy, on a much smaller mammal, like a mouse. Uh, the big obstacle that the team had to overcome along the way was the fact that mammals, as opposed to fish, have a lining uh, on the inside of the rectum, which limits the exchange of gases through the intestinal wall. Please, Gilad, go on. To avoid having to scrape this lining away, which can be a painful process, they hit on a brilliant solution. There is a family of liquids known as perfluorocarbons, which can carry large amounts of oxygen. That means they're often used as blood substitutes or to assist in the ventilation of premature babies. And that gave the researchers confidence that they were likely to be non-toxic in the applications they had in mind as well. And because these liquids are so much denser than gases, they really fill up the gut. They, they squeeze up against the intestinal wall with much more pressure than just gaseous oxygen does. And that could allow the oxygen to pass through. And once they'd worked this out, the team anesthetized a bunch of mice, gave them perfluorocarbon enemas, and then put them in a low oxygen chamber and monitored how they performed. And so what did they find? So the mice who had had these oxygen enemas, effectively, retained high blood oxygen for four times as long as those without. And what's more, their behavior afterwards didn't seem to be affected by the time they'd spent in low oxygen conditions. So buoyed by the success of these initial trials, the team repeated these experiments with rats and then with pigs, moving their way up degrees of complexity towards humans, and found that intestinal breathing was possible in larger animals as well. So what's the process now to see whether this might transfer to humans? They hope to start trials on healthy human volunteers next year, and these will be really important in understanding whether our intestinal breathing ability is just a biological curiosity or something with genuine medical applications. And there are all sorts of questions that need answering. For example, if you're being rectally ventilated, can you still digest food? Uh, what happens to the delicate ecosystem of microbes that flourishes in your gut and is vital to maintaining health? And how much liquid needs to be pumped in in order to keep you alive? Is it sustainable? If the trials go according to plan, though, it could be a really useful tool in the arsenal of respiratory medicine. And it could presumably work in cases of people who have COVID and need some form of support. That's the idea. The, the team did start their work before the pandemic, but COVID-19 has obviously thrown the need for alternative means of ventilation into very sharp relief. One expert that I spoke to said that any innovation in this field, especially at the moment, is really welcome. Well, Gilad, as you point out, the arsenal of medicine continues to grow. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Now, loyal Babbage listeners will recall that before lockdown, we regularly gave away a book on each show to a lucky listener who answered a question with creativity and pith. 
we'd like to reinstitute that tradition. And the book that the Babbage team has chosen is one that I co-wrote and was published a few weeks ago called Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil, about the role of mental models for innovation and progress. And the question is, if space aliens came down from the sky and said, take me to your leader, what single person ought to speak on behalf of all of humanity? Email your answer to radio at economist.com and we'll choose our three, yes, three favorite replies and share them on an upcoming show and send the winners a copy of the book Framers. Good luck. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I cannot stress enough how important that is so that more people can discover Babbage and become listeners and part of our community. So remember, rate us and review us. Thank you. The producers are the brilliant Jason Hoskin, the superb Amika Shortino-Nolan. The editor is the fantastic Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, oh, you know I want to say a joke, and you know what joke I want to say, and you know I'm not going to say it if I want to keep my podcast. This is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.